Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Drivers, start your engines! Hit the pace car! What for? Because you hit every other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect! When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. It's him. He talks to me. He didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you, he rubbed you. And rubbing son is racing. Hey, race fans, welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network and welcome to Drafting the Circuits. My name is Frank Santoroski. I'll be your host for the next hour as we talk about this past week in racing. Joining me in the studio tonight, I've got uh, Louise Torres, Joey Barnes, Christopher Hardy, and Richard Uden. Fellas, how you doing? Good, thank you. Good. Doing solid. Excellent. All right, yeah. So uh, we had two uh, major series racing, uh, both a NASCAR and IndyCar race. But uh, last week we did our IndyCar-only show, so we kind of, uh, you know, didn't mention anything else. But there was a major Formula One story that is uh, developing or, you know, continuing to develop, and that involves the Williams team. And, Richard, that is your one of your former employers. So, I mean, you've told us time and time again, that Frank would probably never sell. Although it seems like times are dire enough that perhaps Williams is up for sale. We've heard that Total Wolf has bought a, I believe, a 5% stake. So, uh, uh, Richard, talk to us about what's going on at Williams and, and where do you see them landing on this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's the epitome of any motorsport, isn't it? I mean, you know, money talks, and, and, and Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsport in many, many ways with the technology and the speed and, and, and the like. It's also the pinnacle when it comes to the, the cost and the expense. And you, you, you need for a, a – basically what Williams is, is it's one of the old-fashioned privateer teams. What these privateer teams need are sponsorship, are money, and um, – under the current climate, under the current situation, uh, and combined with their performance, they're just not getting it. Uh, you look at the last three or four years, really, and their performance has been poor. I think they finished bottom of the World Championship the last two years. Uh, they've, they've, they've lost the money coming through from uh, the Stroll family there. They lost the money that they were coming, getting from uh, Poland uh, last year through the uh, Robert Kubica deal. Um, and they're, fundamentally, they're struggling. Um, yeah, they, they lost the Martini money that was there a couple of years ago. They lost Martini. They've lost, uh, and also there's the announcement they've lost the Rocket sponsorship. How apparently there was no breach of contract. Uh, it was just terminated. So 
whatever is going on there, nobody really knows. Uh, they have some loans, apparently, which they've restructured and they've bought in, let's say, £28 million, which is, what, $35 million, which they say is enough to get them through this season, which probably sounds about right, really. Uh, once, you know, considering all the development's been done, obviously, they probably will be doing very little development on their car. <clears throat> so, and also with the new regulations in place for 2021, which has covered is a pushing back of the regulations to 2022. So for 2021, basically fundamentally, you can have the same cars that are running this year with what they're considering to be a token system for upgrades. So what you've got this year within a greater extent is what you're going to go into next year with. Um, so it's all, it's all sort of conspiring against Williams in many, many ways. And, um, you know, Frank's one of the, he's pretty much the last of the old guard, although he's, day-to-day involvement with the team is limited now and Claire's running in majority, but obviously the major decisions still go through Frank. Um, I don't think there's any denying that. Um, and yeah, you know, he would never sell the team uh, unless it was for, in, into the right position. And I think the um, ideal situation would be an investment uh, from a third party rather than an outright sale. Um, from what you said, Toto had purchased... Um, some shares in the team. Now, I, I wasn't aware of that, but originally that's where Toto was involved in motorsport. Before Toto became team principal at Mercedes, he's, he's, he was on the board at uh, Williams and, and, and heavily involved there. So um, he does have a link to the team. Obviously, they've got the Mercedes engine supply. So they're, and they've got, you know, Mercedes have got George Russell uh, placed with that team. So there is obviously a desire for Mercedes to see Williams uh, continue and be in a strong position. I, I don't think there's anybody in the sport, and I, I would consider Toto one of the good guys in the sport, there's a number of them, who would want to see Williams in a bad situation. I think they appreciate the competition that um, Williams could potentially bring if they were successful, and also they, you know, they appreciate the history of the team and of the sport, and the importance of, of having them um, out there. But it is it's a shame that it's come to this, but hopefully it could be a good thing. You know, Claire uh, Williams was on Sky TV in the UK doing an interview and she said, you know, this is three or four days after the announcement that the team is looking for new investment or up for sale. And she said, you know, she's had dozens of emails of sympathy saying, oh, you know, and all this sort of stuff, you know, sorry that it's in this situation. And she turned around and said, well, actually, this is potentially a good thing. You know, if we can get a good investment and a good group of people come in, come on board to, to help the team grow and rebuild, then it's a good thing. There's no sympathy cards, you know, they're not looking at it in that way. And I hope that's the case. You know, there's a, there's a they the whole Paddy Lowe thing I really was there. They tripped up quite badly on that. You know, there's a huge amount of expectation uh, when they had Paddy on board there at the start of last season, and I find it very very hard to believe that it was solely his fault that they did things like miss the first two and a half days of eight days of testing or whatever it was. You know, they, they were obviously massively impacted by that. Um, I find it very hard to believe that it was solely his responsibility, but he was the fall guy for it. And, uh, you know, there could have been some contractual situations there with sponsors that had put their weight behind Paddy and, you know, maybe that didn't come to fruition. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, I'm no doubt there'll be investors around because, you know, it's, it's a big, big team and a big organization and people are going to want to be associated with them. But, um, yeah, I really do hope that somebody comes in and, and does the right thing for the team. Um, 
in the same way that Sauber have. You know, you, you've got to remember it wasn't too long ago that Sauber were in a very, very similar situation when BMW pulled out. Um, they were on the verge of going out of business. And, um, you know, there's slowly over the years there's investment. And now you look at the deal with Alpha. Um, you know, they're a very competitive organization. Yeah, it would be a shame to see the Williams name disappear from the grid. Cause, you know, and I, I, mean, I, I yeah. really don't think it would because I think if you're going to be investing, I think if you're somebody that invests in a team like Williams, you know, and, and this is no disrespect to some of the other teams out there, they're not a they're not a force India. They're not a Minardi. You know, Williams is synonymous with the sport, especially in the UK. I mean, if you're of a if you're of a certain age, such as myself, um, you know, Williams is, is you know Nigel Mansell, Damon Hill, and you know all that sort of stuff. That's, that, that's that is. Oh yeah, going back to Alan Jones, who won them the well, first not championship. Quite, yeah. not, not quite that far. Not for me anyway. Maybe yourself, <laughs> but not for me. Do you? <clears throat> excuse me. Do you think there's an opportunity here with like somebody? Obviously, like Claire's been there for a while now uh, in her role. And Toto having shares, do you think maybe because we've also been hearing about the situation where, depending on the day, Mercedes is either in for the future or they're not, do you see a situation where maybe they could become somewhat of a works team down the road, kind of similar well, to the BMW Sauber thing? I was always of the opinion, and I, I, I'm of the opinion now, that you will never win a championship as a customer team. Yeah. And, I mean, we saw, when I was at Williams, you know, that was when we had Valtteri and um, Felipe driving for us. And, you know, we, we were competitive. And that was partly because a lot of other teams weren't competitive, you know. We, we were the best of the bad, of a bad group behind Mercedes, really. But when we started to get close to Mercedes, you know, there's some races out there. I remember Austria, like, we had first and second. We qualified one, two in Austria one year. And, um, you know, Monza, we were competitive as well. Mercedes would turn around and, and not handicap us, but make it. We were having to run different spec of components than they were, I think. Better comic. But that's, that's Mercedes, um, you know, that's in their best interest, obviously. That's where I think McLaren will struggle. Now, I was very much of the opinion that, um, you know, Williams, and they had the op- opportunity, should have gone down the Honda route when Honda invested in McLaren. Um, they didn't, and they stuck with Mercedes. Now, obviously, in hindsight, that's probably a good thing, because the, the hurt that McLaren went through for three years, um, maybe that was the McLaren-Honda dynamic. I don't know. But um, you look at Red Bull, you know, they've got through that hurt, and now they've jumped on board with Honda, and, you know, they're, they're the Honda works team, pretty much. Um, so, you know, I... I I very much think that if you want to be competitive, now obviously Williams, they're not going to look to win the championship in 2021 or 2022 or anything like that. Yeah. You know, they're in they're in survival mode. So yeah, if an opportunity does come along to work closer with an organisation like Mercedes, then they will do. Now I know for a fact that when I was there, uh, <laughs> we had an opportunity to, as Racing Point do at the moment, buy a lot more of intellectual property from Mercedes than we were. We could have bought transmissions, gearboxes, rear suspension, in the same way that Hastas from Ferrari and Toro Rosso, whatever they're called now, Alpha, Alpha, whatever they are now, um, 
you know, they do from Red Bull. You know, they buy a lot more components, whereas Williams were at that point very much headstrong and said, no, nope, we're going to build our own gearboxes, we're going to build our own suspension, and all this sort of thing. Now, maybe that wasn't a smart move. I don't know. But, you know, Frank's in racing to win, not to compete, not to get a entry, you know, a competitor's medal and say, well done for turning up and giving a pat on the head. You know, Frank's out there to win, and he will do everything that he can to win. And maybe at times that has been detrimental to the actual core survival of the team when the finances haven't enabled him to win. So it will be interesting to see if you get a manufacturer backing. But if you want to be successful, you have to be a works team. So, and this is just, and, and I know we got to move on. So this is really the last question I had for you on this is just for my own curiosity. Do you feel like this is partly because Racing Point is about to be the Aston Martin works team next year and that this is kind of just their hand being forced uh, into figuring out a more better situation moving forward in Formula it 1? It could well be. And also, basically, to put it bluntly, they've sold all the family silverware. Yeah. You know, when I was there, there was three companies. There was William Grand Prix. There was Williams Advanced Engineering and there was Williams Hybrid Power. Williams Hybrid Power was sold to GKM. Williams Advanced Engineering has been sold off as a separate entity now. So there's basically nothing left in the pot for them to dig into and loan against as assets or whatever it may be. Um, so they're, they're scraping the barrel right now. And yes, you know, you look at how Aston Martin have got involved with, with Racing Point and, and, and the like. And, you know... I, I get the impression that one of the reasons that there was no reason why um, Lawrence Stroll, Lance Stroll's father, couldn't have invested in Williams. He, he did when he first, when Lance first raced for Williams, he was heavily involved in investing in the team. There was no reason whatsoever why he couldn't have put the sort of investment into Williams as he has into Racing Point. I think it was Frank that wouldn't allow it. I think Frank just. There's something about that whole setup that, you know, what happens if, what happens when, you know, if, if Lance has an accident and gets injured and can't race? What happens if he gets bored and wants to go and play on another game somewhere? You know, where's that commitment? Where's that long term dedication going? And it may work out for Racing Point for a couple of years, but where's the heritage? Where's the long term? legacy coming in and you've got to give credit to teams like red bull and mercedes they've created that and to a certain extent even now you know minardi always used to have that legacy that little like quirkiness didn't they and toro rosso kept a little bit of that alive but everybody now thinks of toro rosso as the red bull junior team which is technically what they are but they're not but but there's a no you know renault don't have that heart and soul that benetton used to have and you know, Sauber had it, and you wonder how that's going to work with Alpha now, if they're still going to keep that integrity, if you like, that a lot of these older race teams have. Uh, but unfortunately, integrity only gets you so far. So it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Ross Brown, you know, has come out and said that there's some very, very serious people interested in working with the team. And, you know, Ross, Ross started his career at, um, at Williams. That was his first team, and not many people really really associates him with Benetton and um, um, Ferrari, but, you know, and, and obviously Mercedes as well. But, you know, Ross started off at Williams and he's got a soft spot for the team. A lot of people do, you know, you, you look at the, the top engineers in Formula 1, they've all been through Williams at some point. And um, I think somebody will come along and invest. I think there will be an investment rather than a buyout. Um, 
And obviously, over time, you know, Frank's not getting younger. And goodness me, you, you know, Frank's the world's oldest living or longest surviving tetraplegic, which, you know, is testament to his character, you know, period sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but they need to keep that ethos and that heritage and i say i think they'll you know they will do everything they can to keep the williams name keep the location keep the staff keep the you know the senior people on board and and see how they can you know start to rebound because the sports needs it you know everybody needs you know williams to be successful mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing chumba casino this year i was only playing for fun so winning this was a dream come true chumba casino is america's number one social casino experience it's serious fun with over 80 casino style games to choose from you too could win life-changing amounts of cash be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Really? And um, hopefully they will. Yeah, we all hope for that. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's sad that we've seen names like uh, Tyrrell and Lotus just go away. After, they were after, different, after. you know, they were different eras, weren't they? And, and, well, and, but, well, but William was right there. Competing with yeah, but, but, but Tyr- Tyrrell and Tyrrell Lotus and at the same Lotus, time, yeah. The, the reason that Tyrrell and Lotus went away was because they were badly run. I, I don't think anybody can ever accuse Williams of fundamentally being badly run. There's maybe been badly led from a technical standpoint, which has put them into that situation. Um, well, I, I want to say Tyrrell and um, Lotus were badly run after the principal member yeah. that, and, that and, the team's name for had passed away. Now, Frank Williams yeah. is still, uh, he's 78 yeah. years old. Like I said, he's a you know, quadriplegic, uh, but he's still there, still making a voice, and, and still mm-hmm. y- you have that guy. I, I think the only team that has really survived very long after the principal um, has passed away is McLaren. Yeah. And McLaren, and they have been so strong. And it's been 50 years since Bruce passed away, but they have done a great job there. And, you know, they're, they're, they're looking to uh, re- rebound this year once we get racing at, what is it, July, yeah. July 5th? Yep, yeah, that weekend, yeah, yeah, in Austria, yeah. No, I mean, you know, everybody's looking at a bad thing, but I really do genuinely hope because, you know, a lot of them, I still know, you know, a lot, a lot of people that work there. And um, I got a huge amount of respect for them, and there's some really good, seriously, seriously smart people that work there. And I really do hope that this is actually a an opportunity for them to get some money in. And also with the, you know, I think it's it's massively important. And it was it was interesting the timing of this. You know, Williams has been looking for investment for well, as a privateer team, they're always looking for investment. But this major announcement came post. Um, the announcement on the re- realignment, for want of a better word, refinancing of the budget caps for 2021 and beyond. So I think it's sort of saying, look, okay, look, to potential investors, look, you know, this is 
this is set in stone now. These are the cards that are on the table. This is what we've got to play with. Um, whereas in the past, it's always been a little bit of an yes. If you're looking to invest, you're like, well, we're going to be 30, 40, 50, $100 million short than everybody else. Whereas now you know where you're going to sit with the amount of money you're going to invest. So I think that certainly, certainly will help get investors, not just into Williams, but every team if they're looking for it. And hopefully bring new teams in as well. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. So, but, uh, Gosh, I can only hope for the best for the Williams team because they, they were one of my favorite teams to follow for years and years and years, even before you were born, Richard. <laughs> so, I'm sure. But, but let, let, let's talk about some of the uh, actual races we had this weekend. Now, uh, IndyCar Series was at Texas without fans. Joey, there were only a few invited journalists there, and you were one of them. Um, and you wrote a great piece for Racer Magazine that you find at Racer.com called, I believe it was called The Loneliest IndyCar Race. The loneliest race, but yeah. The loneliest race, yeah. I uh, I really enjoyed reading that, but uh, so let's let's break down this race. We've got uh, uh, you know a lot of folks talking about the um, you know the the uh, NASCAR compound that was still on the track or maybe not on the track, depending on who you read. Um, but at the end of the day, it was Scott Dixon, who's the master of Texas to begin with. So Joey, Joey, break it down for us. Yeah, uh, I guess to start off on the compound thing, since you kind of alluded to it, uh, I can tell you from what I was told from Eddie Gossage himself that the the track was scrubbed clean of any compound. Uh, that's what the people that handled it, they instructed him that it was wiped clean. Um, it was a darker shade than the inside line, so if you touched it, there may have been a dramatic temperature difference. Obviously, darker asphalt's going to hold more heat than... Uh, than you know lighter so just uh we were pushing temperatures of 100 degrees so the track temp was well over 130 uh and that was on pit road i can't even imagine what it might have been in turns where where this stained uh, asphalt was but uh no uh like you said scott dixon went out there um chris called it last on last week's show that uh scott dixon would win and uh i mean him and michael cannon literally just showed up and showed out right from the get-go. They were strong in practice. They were strong in qualifying. Um, Joseph Newgarden looked like he was going to have something for him after getting the pole, but uh, honestly, he just didn't quite have the long run speed it looked like. And as the race wore on, uh, his car handling wasn't just quite on the same level. And, you know, a lot of people were worried about a pack race, but kind of what we talked about last week played out where, it really depends on how you unload, uh, how you get to the track, and with such limited time to, to really practice, it's going to really determine how quickly you're going to be able to perform on Saturday night. And we saw that because the field was pretty stretched out. It wasn't really necessarily a pack race. At one point, Dixon had like a, a what six-second lead on second place and a 16-second lead on third at one point. So there was a, a pretty significant gap. Um I can tell you that um, just to kind of look at the breakdown here, you know, Dixon won, uh, Pagano was second, Newgarden was third, Zach Veach had a really good run uh, in P4. Um, it just really good effort all around from that group. I, I think that what's uh, there were some really good runs for, for Connor Daly, who finished, I think it was P6, I think. Um, and Ryan Hunter Ray went a lap down early uh, with e after having ACU issues and turned around and um, 
got a got a top ten finish out of it. And the the story for me wasn't just Dixon and it wasn't just the compound and it wasn't all this. Um there was a lot of variables that really made this race interesting. So <clears throat> I think from from one standpoint was the limited amount of time between qualifying and, and the race. You had about a two hour window, give or take. And we saw that impact some guys. So the rule was that after qualifying, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, He he didn't make the start, unfortunately. Yeah. And and that kind of where I was going with it is they impound the cars, uh, between qualifying and the race. And so for certain guys, when, when they got on the line and got on the grid ready to start, they had ECU issues, electronic issues. Those guys were Alexander Rossi, Ryan Hunter Ray and Graham Rahal. Graham Rahal's was so severe, they actually had to go to the garage and do a full reset. And they that forced them to actually, because of re-entry, had to go two laps down. Um, I'm a little conflicted about this because if you impound the cars, you wouldn't necessarily, like, it doesn't, there's something there that doesn't quite seem right upon trying to get the cars fired back up, get set for the race. I feel like there should maybe be a little bit more of a grace period. These guys probably shouldn't have served penalties, in my opinion, but that's neither here nor there. Um, oh, no, I agree, I agree with I you agree. 100%. They should not have made my, those um, guys serve the drive-through penalty. Yeah. Yeah, my guess here is that what happened is they had, a, like, a, a qualifying map and a race map set in the ECU. And probably the race, when they went to make that change, I think that's probably when it kicked up a stink and uh, they had to reprogram them. Because that's and, like... That would be my guess, or something along those lines, uh, you know, a mode or a map setting. So is that something that you you do right after qualifying, like whenever the cars are on pit road before they're impounded, or because otherwise your only other opportunity is as you're getting ready to to go racing. Well, typically what you do, um, and, and why they have these different modes, is depending on the on the setup. So so when you've got a short turnaround like this, probably what you do from an uh, ECU standpoint is. You'd load to, to multiple maps. You know, you'd have your qualifying map, you'd have your restart map, you'd have your fuel save map, you'd have your push to pass push to pass map. Now, I don't know exactly within IndyCar the exact configurations of the ECU and all these possible, you know, modes, but it could well be that they've got into the situation they've gone through qualifying. Okay, everything's great, and then you can't really check it. You're not going to run a qualifying lap at, you know, race pace because it's you know, or whatever in race mode or fuel serving mode. And they're probably gone, you know, they'll have a mode for like the, you know, the, the pre-race laps, the three or four laps pre-race. Uh, there'll be a mode for that probably. And it could be that there's some glitch in there and they haven't had a chance to check it and it's just kicked it out and spat it out and said, yep, yeah, nope, don't like that. And yeah. of course, I think Honda have turned around or one of the teams has turned around and said, yeah, this does happen every now and again. But because Honda and Chevy weren't allowed to send engineers the track to support them it took a lot to flash to use and it, it typically would if there was somebody there you know with a little bit more experience of this so it was it was interesting to watch i must admit from my sort of perspective and trying to work out what was going on but um yeah it was a little bit unfortunate and it, that sort of you know soured it having three pre-competitive guys taken out of the race so early yeah and uh kind of to to frank's point earlier with takuma so for, for those that didn't get a chance to see, uh, in qualifying, he was the 14th driver out of, of 24 to, to try to go and make his laps. He was starting his first lap, enters turn one. He kind of entered turn one. Actually, he didn't kind of. He entered turn one pretty high. 
was in the the stained asphalt and the back end just just came around and he ended up doing a complete 540 and went nose first into the uh, turn two wall destroyed the car um that said uh because of the situation of having a two-hour window the crew was actually going to try to repair the primary car because in order to go to the backup car you'd have to take the engine out and there wasn't enough time for that um so the team opted to try to fix the primary car and unfortunately they couldn't get that done in the time uh it was just too tight of a window and so as such uh takuma sato didn't start the race um it, it was kind of interesting because it's something you don't commonly see is a DNS in uh, an IndyCar, but uh, this happened in this situation uh, last year's pole sitter. So certainly you'd look for the speed to be there. Uh, Graham had a, had a pretty good hot rod too. So you thought that maybe if they were going to have uh, be some people that could upset the typical favorites, as it were, Takuma could certainly be one of those. And it certainly didn't play in his favor after that crash. Now, speaking of the typical favorites, I, <laughs> You know, we're, we're used to seeing the AJ Foyt team languishing at the back of the field. However, on, on this particular day, we saw Charlie Kimball have a really good run. Uh, Tony Canano was having a really good run until he got a pit road speeding penalty. So, uh, Louise, I'm going to throw it over to you. I mean, like, like you know, Charlie's day ended on a sour note where his, his last pit stop uh, allowed him to uh, lose some positions, and he ended up in the wall on the last lap. But uh, uh, Foytin, it certainly th- seems like things are looking up for them. It looked pretty optimistic. It is a definitely a darn shame that that Kimball is ultimately pitted and also just ended up all for not for crashing at the very end of the race. It's coming to the white, coming to the checker flag, and all of that. But Kimball, from a vantage point from being at home, seems like he was one of the very few cars. He and Vish were one of the very few cars that could probably make long runs work for them. Because as the race went on with long green flag runs, even before they had to pit every 35 laps or so under green, they were on the move. They were very consistent. And I'd imagine had Kimball had not had that ordeal, it would have been an absolute banner day for the Foyt camp. Because it just proves that their oval programs are getting there to be the dark horse contenders. And as far as Kanan, he did pretty well. Uh, just hanging on to that top top ten, just outside of it. I thought for his last race at Texas, it, he, it ended in a, in a relatively positive way. Sure, it's not the ideal result, but compared to compared to Gateway, where Kanan got a podium out of it, but it's still a pretty encouraging sign for Floyd. They were able to get all of that done, especially knowing that they had to fly in their people commercially instead of a charter. So that quick turnaround and everything that has unfolded, I gave them the huge props for them. They did an excellent job. Yeah, it's just, it's just unfortunate that it ended that way for those guys. So Now, Christopher, um, some of your thoughts on Texas. So, um, first of all, Foyt typically flies a lot of people commercial because when I was flying to St. Petersburg this year, I actually flew on the same flight as Charlie Kimball um, and several of the Foyt team guys. Um, oh, but okay. One of the people um, that I was really pleased to see do well was Oliver Askew. Now, this was his – so him and Renus VK, this was their first IndyCar race. Um, Renus did not do very well. You know, he had a spinning – practice earlier and he didn't even qualify and he had another sprint of the race uh, off of turn number two but Oliver 
what was great for him was he didn't have a situation where he made a name for himself, like in a bad way. I mean, he was he ran a very quiet, unassuming race, started, I think, like 18th and he finished ninth, um, never put a wheel wrong all race long. And I mean, you couldn't really ask for more from a debut for someone, you know, that's put into this kind of a situation where, you know, Yes, Robert Wickens did such an amazing job in his first race um, in St. Pete, but, you know, he knew when his first race was going to be. He had a dedicated, you know, postseason program. There was no controversy there. While there was a lot with Oliver and Patricio Award with the whole Hinchcliffe thing and the McLaren situation and then the pandemic and just, you know, the list goes on and on. But given all of that that he had to deal with, you know, Oliver, in my opinion, ran a very fine race, did a very good job, and – you know, he's someone that we should be talking about in the future because, you know, he took off every single box. He, he ran it well and did a good job. So let's talk about VK because you mentioned him. Now, the upsetting thing for me was that uh, Ed Carpenter, who was the team owner, kind of kind of threw VK under the bus a little bit. Well, oh, he did all right. When you have that much damage uh, from a single day of running – you know, I can see why, but I think Ed needs to just remember, you know, hey, there's a reason why you signed him, and it's not just because Jumbo Supermarkets wrote you a big check. Uh, Oliver and Renus ran 48 races together on the road to Indy. Renus had one DNF in that entire time, just one. Renus won 16 of those 48 races, Oliver won 15. There's a like I said, Renus has you know he has the skill to do the job, but sometimes are growing pains to this situation uh, and, and you know, this profession. So just remember, you know, give the kid a little bit of time. He's going to do a good job. Uh, you know, not everyone's going to be a flash in the pan immediately. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, the, Joey. I think with Renus, there's there's a couple things that stand out. One. We all know that he has this raw ability, and he's just super quick. I mean, in, in the rookie practice, he, he was already running uh, comfortable 205, 207, somewhere around there before he walled it. And then he started this race like 23rd or 22nd, and it climbed all the way up into the top 16 in 30-something laps, 37 laps before he crashed. So the, the speed is going to be there. It's just a matter of being able to temper it a little bit to not – not be so aggressive and so, um, you know, harness, like you just harness your pace. And I think that's just, that's something that with, yeah, Ed threw him under the bus, but he also made sure at the end of it, he gave him some, it was tough love. Like, Hey, you know, we accept it. We still love him. He just got to calm the hell down. And I, I think it's just, he came out of the gate. It's your first Indy car race. You're charged up. It's a long day for everybody too. So, um, you know, I think all those factors kind of had a, a part to play in it. But um, I, I think the kid's going to be fine, and he's with the right organization to help him grow too. Um, on Oliver, something that's kind of cool to note, this is actually this – he tied the second-best finish of any Indy Lights driver making their debut in IndyCar. Uh, he tied Pato, Brian Herta, and uh, Sage Karam with his uh, ninth-place finish. So uh, just – and he did it at a, at a race he's never run before. At a track he's not run before, and something that Chris loves to mention, this is only his fourth year in cars. So uh, that's pretty outstanding for a kid to be that polished when he's still so raw at this. 
So um, props to him on the ninth place finish. That's for sure. Definitely the case for Askew. He kind of slipped under the radar, but to get a top 10 is a good start for him. And as far as VK is concerned, as I entitled, it was a disastrous debut, but I, I give him time. I'm not going to – I don't think anybody should just judge one driver for one race, and especially on an Indy car because it's a different feel. It's a different level. So it's going to take some adjustment. And also – so. I'd expect a better turnaround come the 4th of July at Indianapolis, and especially in those doubleheaders at Road America and Iowa coming up as well in the month of July. All right, so with that being said, I'm like, you know, I'm still just a little disappointed in Ed to, <laughs> you know, just throw his guy under the bus on national media. But, uh, you know, again, like you said, Joey, tough love. So, uh, I mean, who else impressed you today, Christopher, Louise, or Joey, or Richard? Um, the next game impressed me. I, yeah, I mean, Felix Rosenquist was just bad quick, and he didn't quite shoot out of a cannon the same way that uh, that Scott did. Uh, you look at Felix, he methodically climbed his way up to the front and put himself in position to win. And honestly, if he didn't kind of – if he just didn't get a little too over-eager by moving to the outside lane to try to get around Hinch, uh, exiting two, he probably – challenges for that win because uh, that happened with like what nine laps to go uh i'm a little conflicted as far as why there was so much lap traffic without uh kind of getting out of the way but i also know that was during a weird pit cycle too so it's kind of hard to to monitor or regulate that if you are will but uh felix was was damn impressive um also if i'm honest the something that did did quite a bit impress me and it was desperately needed was the fact that the TV viewership numbers were up uh, significantly. Yeah, they've moved this race to primetime NBC Saturday night under the lights, and it goes and does like a 1.285 million people tuned in on average, which was the highest non-Indy 500 race since 2016 at Detroit. Um, so really good to see that. Um, it tells you that people really hungered to have IndyCar back, and it also shows that you know, maybe there should be some more IndyCar races put on uh, prime time on NBC. Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, the the numbers don't lie. Uh, you know, so we've you know we have it, this NBC Sports, and, and there's a lot of folks who can't figure out NBC Gold. You know, if you look at social media, but uh, to throw it on your, your local network in place of whatever, you know, whatever else is on NBC Saturday night, which isn't much, you know. They usually show a rerun of SNL before the live show. But, uh, yeah, it was really nice to see them big TV numbers. So, Yeah, one one thing I can tell you is was what we saw today. I don't be surprised if we see – or not today, but what we saw Saturday still feels like today. Golly, it's been long. Uh, what we saw on Saturday, I you could see that kind of play out a, quite frequently during the season as far as uh, one-day shows. I think we're going to have that. They're, they're calling them doubleheader weekends, but they're effectively going to run them like two one-day shows back-to-back, and that's the consecutive weekends in Road America and at Iowa in July. They're going to be run kind of like how it was in Texas. You unload, you practice, you qualify, you race, and you repeat that this, the next day. Um, I think this could become a theme. Uh, I think it's it's something that, depending on how it's re- perceived by crews and also dependent on a few other factors, sponsorship-related and, and obviously the promoters 
have a bigger hand in, in helping promote IndyCar, maybe more so than than what people get on the NASCAR side, because that's more dictated by TV. Uh, this avenue, maybe not so much. So very interested to see if this happens a little bit more. Maybe it's something we see trickle into Gateway. Maybe it's something we see at a couple of other road course venues. If places like Laguna Seca happen later this year, that's going to be a one-day show. So um, very interested to see how often this becomes a regular thing this year. Yeah, but the thing you got to wonder about, though, is is can these guys get a couple spare engines? Because we, we've seen this a couple times. If you remember back in 2015 when we had uh, – and Carpenter crash, uh, you know, before Indy qualifying, uh, where they had to, you know, you know, just, just try to get the engine moved over from the primary car to the backup, and got it done just in time. And we, we saw the same thing uh, with Takuma, where they they didn't have enough time to move the engine over, you know, to the to the backup car. So, uh, you know, if these guys got a couple of extra spare engines to have a bolted and ready in that backup car, perhaps yeah. that, that will be because what what you're talking about is like if you if you're gonna do this format with with the one day thing and you got a situation like Takuma ran into in Texas where he couldn't even start the race, but if they had a little you know a couple spare engines, boom, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's difficult, especially when you see that there's so many engine leases going out. Um, and I think the other end of that is like that. Just to kind of spitball and thinking out loud here is the effects of, of that it has on a, on a sponsorship deal. You know, like because you didn't start the race because that's not prime time TV that that sh- that that car didn't get a chance to be seen on. Um, there's different factors like that that honestly long term could hurt the team. Hell, it could sh- hurt them in the short term. So at the same time. You know, it's the same for everybody, right? I mean, that's kind of the the running joke. Whenever you go ask drivers about this or that, the the running joke is, well, it's the same for everybody. Well, it is. So it's really on them to make sure that uh, they don't uh, mess up, honestly. I mean, it's you could argue that that's really what's going to separate guys in some ways. And it's not a bad thing if that's what separates people, because when the series is this stacked, it could use with some different variables that help separate the field a little bit, I think. Yeah, but not separated to the point where a guy misses the race. I mean, I, I mean that's just that's just where I'm at with this because we uh, we saw the same thing um, with Dixon not too many years ago where they had to they got all that good ass and they they brought in the uh, Ipsa crews to help get that engine change you know back in time for him to make the race. You do what you got to do. I mean, honestly, you you probably should have. This is not to – this is going to come across like a, a dick thing to say, but, uh, you know, when you know that that lane is that treacherous and all you got to do is hook the bottom and just put your foot in it, and if it's fast enough to be 20th or if it's fast enough to be first, it doesn't matter as long as it's clean enough to get into the race because afterwards you got 200 laps that you can methodically work your way up. I mean, we saw guys like Hunter Ray go, go a lap down that got up, got a top 10. So there was opportunity to move through this field even though people want to talk about a lack of passing or this or that, there was so much strategy involved and there was still good passing. I mean, the move that Dixon put on Newgarden for the lead on lap 91 was ridiculous. And um, I, I just think that it wouldn't hurt to, to keep your head on your shoulders and be more methodical about it and just think about getting into the race first. Um, 
and and not thinking about pole per se. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the what's day, the they, they... About, uh, what's the saying about to finish first? You must first finish. Exactly. So, and and in this case, you have to start the damn thing. So, so Christopher and Louise, do you guys have any other comments about Texas Trace before we move on and start talking about NASCAR Atlanta? Nothing else for me. Um, glad to see everyone made it out in one piece. No one got hurt, and uh, that was really the number one concern I had. Um, I second that. But who would have thought that the something NASCAR will play a big role at an IndyCar race? Seems like it just does not go away, the NASCAR side of things. All right, well, speaking of the NASCAR side of things, NASCAR had a race in Atlanta. Kevin Harvick chalked up his 51st career win. Uh, again, with no uh, fans in place. Another another lonely race. So, um, uh, Louise, you want to chime in and talk about the Atlanta race? Yeah, I think it was one of those racing deals where it's – well, it's once that literally dragged on for a large chunk of it. The, inter- the benefit of going through that race is just listening through Kurt Busch and Clint Boyer's radio throughout because they said some pretty entertaining stuff, but also the same common theme that I've noticed from them and also when when it comes to Martin Truex Jr., who got his first top five this season. Their cars were very tight. They were very – they just had a hard time – fixing it and dialing it in. And obviously, it's one of those things that we kind of knew it was bound to happen when it's just one-day shows and you have no practice or qualifying to get it dialed up. So I can imagine it was a race-by-race. As the race going on, they try to make it better, and we definitely saw that from Truex. It definitely saw that from Kurt Busch. But Truex had the card to beat. But once the final stage got going, then Harvard was at a different zip code, and Truex just struggled with car handling. But as far as the race distance at Atlanta, considering how the track record is still from 1997, the last time they repaved it when they made it and they added that little dog leg instead of that little oval that kind of rivals Homestead, what Homestead looks like now, that it's just dragged on too too long. I think it just has to do with the package makes it a, a massively slow from a visual standpoint. But they got to do something about that aspect. What do they want to shore in the races? Some of them, some of them, that's one thing. But another is just got to. Hopefully, when the new car comes along, it gets better, so it doesn't feel like three and a half hours compared to the IndyCar race. That was like Formula One levels of quickness, ninety-eight minutes. NASCAR was three and a half, but it felt literally three and a half hours compared to some races that may look like three and a half hours, but it felt like two. All right, and again, you know. Uh NASCAR is broadcasting on network TV. The, the races have been on Fox rather than Fox, you know, Fox Sports or Fox 2. Um, uh, have their TV ratings been any better? They've been doing pretty good. It's just some this time around Atlanta, it went down quite a bit because remember Atlanta last year was the second race of the year. So obviously you have the aftermath, the 500. So the numbers are typically higher than the rest of the season. So considering this race was in June, and I imagine if it was still in March, it would probably drop quite a bit from, like I think what was it, like 5 million in February to down to 2 to 3. I can't pinpoint it. But all I know is 
Indy Car and the Xfinity Rays were the top, one of the top-rated stuff of that day or the weekend. I, I can't pinpoint that, but it was down quite a, quite significantly. Probably a lot to do with the fact that it's at a later point in the season instead of just the week after the 500, like it's been the last couple of years. Well, I mean, the later part of the season and the season kind of just began after it being stalled. So uh, uh, now. Richard, yeah, you've worked in NASCAR some, so tell us about this uh, Atlanta race, man. What were your thoughts? Atlanta's it's one of those great tracks, isn't it? Because you know the tire drop off is, is incredible. It's about two and a half seconds between a new tire and an old tire on there. So whenever you were doing, you know, there was never a strategy call around Atlanta. It's like yeah, tires. <laughs> That's you know, and, and even there was two laps to go, tires. Because there was such a huge, huge advantage, and the only race actually, the race that I thought was the most interesting from that standpoint was the uh, Xfinity race, because obviously they're, they're far more limited on sets of tyres that are available to them. Um, that they actually have to do make a call uh, in the Cup Series. They just keep throwing on tyres. I mean, you'd have to get through. I mean, how many is it? Twelve sets of tyres they get for a race? I can't remember now. But it's that Xfinity gets four sets or five sets. Um, basically, the work, way it worked out is rule of thumb is in Xfinity, you have a set per, for the first two, and then two sets for the second stage. Oh, sorry, the third stage, because that's typically the longest stage, and you have to make a stop during there. So you'd, you know, you'd have, well, you know, do we, when do we make that change? You know, if there's a caution early in the third stage, we don't have enough sets of tyres, or if you're in, you know, the, the first stage, do we, do we take tyres or whatever? But uh, Atlanta's a great track, and I know they keep talking about repairing it every year, but um, really you hope they don't because it just creates such good racing and such exciting races. Um, but, yeah, it's all about time management. It's all about time management. And one of the interesting things, actually, was listening to some of the uh, commentary, especially during the uh, Xfinity race when they had Jamie McMurray and, and Clint Boyer on there. You know, they were saying that Atlanta's one of these tracks where, you know, your crew chief comes on the radio and says, hey, you know, save tyres, save tyres, save fuel, save fuel. So, you know, you lift and coast into the corner. So, you know, and typically a lift and coast in a cup car is like, I don't know, three, two, three hundred feet before turn, you'd, you'd lift off. And, um, you know, they said a lot of the times they'd end up going faster. You know, it's just people overdrive Atlanta because of the tyre degradation. They, they 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 overdrive it and the best way to, to drive around there is, is that sort of slow ease the car through the corner and um yeah it was, it's fascinating to hear some of those insights and i think i've got to give you know real credit to the uh, tv guys you know getting the drivers on board to do the commentary for the xfinity race is fantastic it's uh, not that not that jeff gordon isn't good and the like during the actual broadcast but to hear two current or you know Joe Murray's pretty current, isn't he, really? I mean, I guess, you know, to hear two drivers with a lot of experience of the current regulation cars talking about not just commenting on the race, but how they drive the car, how, excuse me, they react in certain situations, I think it's fascinating to listen to. So just kind of curious, like, what do we attribute to – it's kind of a unique thing, right? Like I look at this race uh, for Atlanta and I didn't keep up with it quite to the same level, but I looking at how the the final stage kind of leveled out, 
the fact that you got a guy like Harvick who literally was just yarding the field at the end of mm-hmm. that thing, and like the Gibbs duo, you could argue the Gibbs trio since all three finished in the top top five, uh, or three of the four drivers finished in top five. I mean, what do you attribute the fact that like on a situation where it's a mile and a half, usually like you look at Charlotte, the racing sucked, and you look. <laughs> I'm not, not going to sugarcoat it. And then you look at how it was in Atlanta, and not only were they was the racing better, but uh, it was better even with a guy that was just yarding the field. I mean, what do you attribute that kind of dominance to? Well, you take Charlotte for example, and and then pretty much the cars are on rails around there. You know, you got relatively high grip. You can just put your foot on, you know, put your foot down on mid corner exit, and the car's going to hold. You know, the downforce of the car generator is going to hold itself. Onto it, you know, you can just drive the thing, and you just go in late on the brakes, and you know you're going to turn, and the car's going to react. Atlanta's not like that, you know, and that's where the comment comes from. You know, being aggressive on the brakes maybe isn't the most effective way. Um, you know, lifting and coasting into the corner is actually the quickest way around there, and it, it's because you've got these extra variables. I think of of, of the the track condition, um, and Darlington's a similar racetrack. You know, Darlington's a very sandy racetrack, and you get a lot of abrasive tire wear. And um, I know that NASCAR are trying to do something similar this weekend, going to, or this week, sorry, tomorrow, as it were, when we're recording on Tuesday. Tomorrow for Martinsville on the Wednesday night, they're looking to, um, you know, run a softer tire, which I'm sure will increase tire wear and reduce the, the, the stage length or the, the, the stints on the tires. And 90% of the time, when you want to see a good race, whether it's, IndyCar, whether it's Formula One, whether it's NASCAR, whether it's tractor racing or whatever you want to watch, the good races are on tyre limited tracks. And when I say tyre limited, you've got two variables typically that will cause you to pit. You're either going to run out of fuel or you're going to run out of tyre. And fuel limited tracks, like I put Charlotte in that uh, section there, are pretty mundane because you can hammer the tyres. You can lean on what they call lean on the tyre push it as hard as you can and you're just waiting to run out of fuel and as soon as you get low on fuel you put, put a new set of tires on and keep doing the same thing on a tire limited track you don't know when the tire is going to drop off you don't know when that you'll hear them describe the cliff you know if your fuel runs laps is your cliff at 40 laps on the tires 45 50 you don't know and it's all about tire management and that's where you get the exciting racing um, unfortunately, Formula One's gone down the route now where you, when you they've removed this option and basically Formula One's become a tyre management strategy because it, you, you you don't refuel. I think you've got to have refueling in there to to add that extra dynamic. But um, yeah, tyre limited tracks are typically what produce the best racing on a on a mile and a half in oval racing. Yeah, no doubt that Atlanta was a lot better than Charlotte, just, just compared to other ones. It, it, I don't know if it has to do with the how I my mood was, or it's just in general how I kind of dragged on. But sure, at the ending part, that's when we saw more movements going on. I know Kurt worked his way from just outside the top to finishing in the top ten this after the kind of day he had where he had to start at the rear, had to serve a mm-hmm. drive through because he failed free race inspection three times. So there were, as the tires fell a lot, that's when we saw a little bit, a lot more moves and track positions gain or lost. 
Yeah. I mean, what you also got to remember in, in cup racing as well is that um, one of the problems with the races being so long is you get, and you saw it a little bit in Texas, admittedly, um, but typically in a cup race, the races are so long, you know, the tire, the, the track conditions on lap one are night and day from lap 300 or whatever it is when you finish the race. You know, you, you're dealing with temperature changes, and especially if you have like a a race that starts in the daytime and finishes at night, which we'll see tomorrow in Martinsville. Uh, you know, so where and and in in the cups cars, there's the setup of the car. There's so little room for manoeuvre, but yet there's such a huge variance in performance. So you've got a very, very small window to set your car up in. So do you go down that route of saying, well, I, I want to make my car good at the start of the race, and then I'm going to make changes to the car and hope they work as we go through the race? Or do you turn around with the mentality and say, like, hey, you know what? Let's just take the, t- take the pain in the first two stages, and then we know we're going to have a quick car at the end of the race, and we're just going to tweak on the car a little bit you know, throughout the race. Because you'll see them, you know, you, a few years ago when they had the driver adjustable track belt, which I thought was a great thing, you know, the driver could actually manage it throughout the stint. Whereas now he can't make any changes to the setup of the car, really. The only thing he can change is brake bias. And that has minimal effect on a lot of these mile and a half because you're not really using the brake. Um, so, but now it's all down to, you know, set segments basically of setup. You know, you'll throw some wedge at it. You'll throw the track bar at it. You can even pull a spring rubber or put spring rubber in or whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, your, your, your changes that you make are, and a lot of the times you don't really know how it's going to react. So that's why you'll see cars come strong at the end of a race or some cars fall off at the end of a race, or, you know, you'll have a car that's set up good for a short run and, or, you know, but bad for a long run. I mean, that's what won Joe Lugano the championship a few years ago down in Homestead, if you remember. His car was great on those like 10, 15 lap runs, whereas I think Truex's car was, was great on the, 30 lap runs and of course there was a caution with 10 laps to go and Lagana had a car that was perfectly set up for a short run so the, the setup of a NASCAR is so fickle compared to an Indy car that you know you can't make aero changes to a NASCAR really you know your aero package it has to fit within the template and if it fits within the template it fits within the template you can't adjust splitter angle and uh, spoiler you know angle and stuff like that um, so it, it's all pure purely down to time management and to how you make the tires work when you set up. Right. So on a side note, do we know when the next NASCAR race will be that fans are allowed to attend? It's been confirmed today with Homestead and Talladega. But Homestead, it's guests rather than fans, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Talladega is the same. Yes, South Florida military. Yeah. Yeah, with Homestead as the the military, Talladega is up to 5,000 only people that can purchase tickets are those who are within 150 miles of the track in Alabama. So it's pretty much secluded to just that's in-state. That's about 10 track. people, then, isn't it? Right, so, that's, yeah. so that's the race on June 14th, right? The Dixie Vodka 400. Then we got Talladega yeah. on June 21st. Correct. And what are we, are we talking? Just what? Cup. Because the Talladega said no crowds allowed for the Arca and Xfinity race. All right, then, then we're to Pocono. Any word on Pocono? No, Pocono, no, no crowd. Indianapolis, no crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Indianapolis, you know, Indianapolis, and I know Kentucky, no crowd. 
because that's that's my home track. And then then we're back to Charlotte in, in mid July for the All Star Open and the All Star Race. No crowds still, or I would doubt it. That hasn't been confirmed as much. Well, with yet. all the other all the other um, political events going on in North Carolina with crowds at the moment, I would imagine that if they were to allow crowds at NASCAR race, it wouldn't go down very well. Well, I mean, on a side note, um, IndyCar has announced that they will allow fans at uh, Road America and possibly Iowa. A little, little still up in the air there. So, uh, but yeah. we, but we are just about out of time. So. Uh, uh, We've got enough time for, like, a final comment from each of you. So, uh, Christopher, I'll start with you because you've been quiet through this whole NASCAR segment. So, uh, Christopher, final thought for the evening? Uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to a bit of a sense of semi-normalcy. I'm heading back to Indianapolis very soon, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the media situation will be like going forward for the remaining IndyCar races on the schedule. But there's still a lot of unknowns, and I'm hoping that, Somehow, some way, we can get past the uh, the pandemic situation that it can that eventually you know stops. But then again, we'll have to see. Amen, brother. Uh, Joey, final thought. Um, honestly, just kind of still in awe over getting a chance to cover the season opener, which sounds so weird to say in June. Um, at Texas this past weekend. It was an awesome experience. Uh, certainly one I'll remember for hopefully the rest of my life, you know, pending bad things. Um, but, uh, I mean, Frank's old and, and, you know, I just, Frank forget, yeah, forgets no. a few things. So I had, I've got, I had a grandma. Frank's she, old. She so, uh, you know, runs in the family. So, um, so yeah, just grateful. I had a chance to do that. And, um, Hopefully everybody thought I did a pretty good job and um, I held the torch for everybody for a little while. We got Joey, back to the track. Joey, I'm gonna be the first to tell you you did a fine job. I was so Thanks, proud Joey. of you. I was so proud of you this weekend because you, you, yeah, you and I have known one another for what, what, what six, eight years now. When you were just you know trying to well, we'll say seven yeah, because it seems like I remember you. so it must be getting there. <laughs> oh God, Joey! I was trying to give you some props here. Don't mind, but but Joey, I, I was very proud of you because you had you had a big day. Uh, you had a lot put on your shoulders that day, and you performed admirably. And I enjoyed everything you wrote. I've been working out, so I got some broad shoulders now, and and I, that way we can carry a little bit more. Maybe I don't know. I'm just now. I'm just talking out of my ass, but um, <laughs> I appreciate the uh, the kind of words, sir. I'm not. I'm terrible at taking compliments. I'm sorry. Okay, so I'll stop complimenting you now, Richard. I'll give you a compliment. Tell you my favorite person in the world, uh, Richard. Well, your, your final thought for the evening. Your wife Frank's married that. too. <laughs> hey, no, she'd oh, be like, boy. you can have him. Just take him. Yeah, that's good with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um. Yeah, no, it, you know, it's actually good to have two races, you know, or two major series racing in the weekend, as you say, getting back to a little bit of normality. But, um, you know, I, I still have a, you know, a sense of caution with the whole concept of people going back to these races. And, you know, we, we've had this thing in, in North Carolina recently. I don't know if it's got much national media attention where a short track posted a race on. Saturday night with 4,000 people in attendance and they classed it as a political protest rather than a race. 
uh, to say the least, the uh, state have shut that down for the next few weeks. Um, so, you know, just be patient, be careful out there. You know, it's not worth the risk. If you feel there's any risk of going to any of these events and races, then just, you know, just be sensible. Um, we've got a long way to go still. I've got some very good friends who are nurses in uh, New York and, and listening to some of their stories is pretty horrific. Um, so as much as we want to get back out there and enjoy it, just, you know, be patient, everybody. We'll get there. All right, Louise, final comment from you, sir. Uh, it feels great to have IndyCar back, for sure. I definitely needed multiple coverages to come back so I could get back to some sense of normalcy as well. Hopefully, come Road America, I get back to real normalcy and start doing content figures crossed on that because I feel like IndyCar might be more open than NASCAR is concerned from in the smaller outlets and the independents at this rate. All right, my final comment is that I enjoyed talking with each of you gentlemen tonight. I want to thank you, Joey, Richard, Christopher, and Louise. You guys are awesome. I want to thank uh, Who's the Radio Network, and I want to thank a Speaker and uh, Google Podcasts, all the people that host us, and you folks that listen to us. I want to thank you, too. Until next week, good night. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 